0: Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and less ukulele. On this episode, unless you've been completely off of social media, you've seen the outcry this summer that there ain't no laws when you're drinking claws. So let's step back and take a look at what the hell is the whole notion of hard seltzer, and how it fits into the rest of what we know, and how you can, if you're feeling cheeky in what remains of summer, make your own flavored malt beverage. But first, a message from our sponsors the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org.
1: Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring artisan malt house Epiphany Craft malts and award winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro level equipment and the best in cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same day order processing, and guaranteed two day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband-and-wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com.
0: Okay, well, thank you for sticking around. Uh, Remember, as always, if you have a chance to interact with any of our sponsors, tell them that you heard about them here on The Brew Files so they know they're spending their money right. Now, let's talk the whole hard seltzer thing. First, what is this? What the heck is this? What has happened to brewing? Well, here's the thing. In today's world, a lot of people want to be health conscious. They're afraid of carbs. Uh, gluten is possibly a mortal enemy. It's no surprise that with these kind of attitudes running around that we're seeing a ton of alternative beverages that are coming out of breweries. The latest of these is of course the hard seltzers, you know, white claw, which is owned by Mark Anthony brands, which also owns Mike's hard lemonade, which is another one of these things, uh, bone and vive, which is owned by ABI or truly, which is owned by Boston beer company. And truly is one of the things keeping Boston beer company alive and afloat. They are clear. They are low in calories. Most of the cans are usually like, oh, look, we're 100 calories for a 12-ounce can. Moderate in booze, so 5%, and flavored with everyone's favorite fruit flavors, and sometimes things reminiscent of Jolly Ranchers. But there's been a lot of hue and cry about these as a bad sign for the beer industry, because now we're seeing craft breweries turning out versions of this category It's insanely popular right now with growth rates in the multiple hundred percent ranges. I know a couple people who run package stores who they talk about the fact they can't actually keep white claw in stock. The amount of it that they are selling is ludicrous. In the spirit of making money, of course it makes sense that craft breweries are gonna, you know, glom onto this trend as well. I was on Instagram the other day and I saw a brewery and I don't remember which brewery it was. They were announcing an imperial hard seltzer, something like 10, 12% alcohol that they had on draft at the brewery. Uh, I'm still just waiting for somebody to have a session hard seltzer that comes in at 0%. And in this category, White Claw is by far and away the top seller. Truly is actually right behind it. Now, here's the thing. Even though everybody is complaining about these, you know, saying that these are bad. Oh, I want somebody think of the brewers and what happened to us? These types of things have been around for a very, very, very long time. There is a whole category in the beverage industry called RTD, ready to drink, or flavored malt beverages, FMBs. We've been having this debate for a long, long time. And so far, the world of beer has survived just fine. The interesting part to me in the shift of this stuff is, I mean, they started with things like, you know, Bartles and James wine coolers. Your wine cooler was actually a malt beverage, In modern times, we've seen Mike's Hard Lemonade, the Smirnoff Ices of the world, a couple of other different things, you know, anything, uh, the Twisted Teas, for instance. But what's been interesting to me about this is the shift recently in the marketing of these things has been more focused on both the health aspects, a healthy party, uh, more sophisticated in some ways. You're seeing that with like the Corona line of things that they're doing. As opposed to sort of the wild binge fest thing that has ended up getting these things banned in a lot of places because of the whole dreaded alco pop. You know, the idea that these things were super approachable for kids and they're, you know, designed for people who don't want to have, you know, the bitter adult beverage of this beer. Remember, uh, not too long ago, probably about a decade ago now, there was a lot of outcry about the things like the Smirnoff Ices and the Jack Daniels beverages and other things that kind of played at being cocktailish or pulling that whole cocktail thing while having sweet approaches. Governments around the world, because of Alka and the worry about binge drinking, actually hit this category with extra taxes and in some places just outright bans you know, because, oh, once somebody think of the kids as they're binge drinking, guess what? Kids are going to binge drink on anything they can get their hands on. Why did the industry create these things that are so controversial? As hard as it is to, for you and I to believe, you know, since we do are listening to this podcast, some people just don't like beer, but they do like the convenience of a ready made beverage that's in those beer like strengths. and It's a lot more party friendly to be sitting there sipping on a glass of five percent hard seltzer as opposed to you know tupping back glasses of wine you know one of those can get you in trouble a lot quicker as we alluded to before people are worried about you know carb counts and sugars and calories and all that which of course seems a little funny when you're dealing with the idea of hey i'm making a beverage and then lastly breweries like easy money and also avoiding taxes It's that last one that made these things kind of a brewery hot item. It it turns out here in the U.S. at least, beer is taxed at a lower rate than wine or spirits. So making a beverage from wine or spirits like, say, a wine spritzer or a canned cocktail subjects that beverage to a much higher tax rate. But here, if you follow the rules, which change over time because rules change, as laid out by the feds and the particular state chairman, you can make a beer that doesn't resemble a beer, but is paid like beer. So, according to the TTB, there's there's these kind of these two notions. There's a malt beverage and there's beer. So, according to the TTB, a malt beverage is a beverage made by the alcoholic fermentation of an infusion or decoction or combination of both, in potable brewing water of malted barley with hops or their parts, or their products, and with or without other malted cereals, and with or without the addition of unmalted or prepared cereals, other carbohydrates or products prepared therefor, and with or without the addition of carbon dioxide, and with or without other wholesome products suitable for human food consumption. And then the Internal Revenue Code, which is the other part that defines this, says beer gets defined as beer, ale, porter, stout, And other similarly fermented beverages, including sake or similar products of any name or description containing one half or 1% or more of alcohol by volume, brewed or produced from malt, wholly or in part, or from any substitute therefor. And that last part is the tricky bit. How do you make one of these things? We've talked a little bit of the taxes here. Turns out it's not really all that hard to make these, so... I'm going to start with one very, very important thing. I think that you need to understand as a homebrewer, as a homebrewer, you are not subjected to tax rates by the U S government or by your local government as a home brewer, You have freedom to do whatever it is that you want to do. So if you want to make a hard seltzer, the easiest thing in the universe that you can do is grab your keg and mix 2.4 liters of 80 proof vodka, 40% alcohol With 16 liters of filtered water, maybe add some mineral salts to it to give it some character. Add flavorings of your choice, so something like a flavor extract. Take your pick. Use something from Holland Nation or any other provider out there. Maybe if you want to be fancy like some people that are actually using fruit puree to be able to flavor this stuff. Chill that mix down. Carbonate it in your keg just like you would a beer. Actually, carbonate it higher. and These things tend to be very bubbly. And drink. I mean, you've just made yourself a keg cocktail. Now, I've done this before for parties where I've done things like, you know, made big batches of cocktails in a keg because it turns out that's a lot easier. And if I didn't value my health, my sanity, or my liver, I could very easily see myself making kegs of gin and tonics for the summer. But I don't. Now, that's the sane way. That is the way I'm going to tell you right now. If you are a home brewer, go do that. It's easy. You can buy a relatively inexpensive vodka. And just go for it. Uh, and again, that's 2.4 liters of, of vodka and fill the rest of your keg with water or fruit or whatever flavoring it is that you want and carbonate that. If you are, say, a purist and you all want to actually exercise the fermentation, then we're going to do it the hard way. Now, the first one I'm going to tell you about is the way that this has been done by the big breweries in the past. Really going to be difficult for us to pull it off at the homebrew level. This is going back to things like your your wine coolers. This is going back to your hard lemonades. They all start with a malt that's as pale as possible. They use the minimum amount of hops needed to qualify by law as beer. So there is actually a definition of it. This has changed from time to time. Um, at one point, it was you had to have a minimum of seven point five pounds of hops per one hundred barrels of beer. I know some of you homebrewers out there have probably used seven point five pounds of hops in five gallons of beer, but that's what you had to do. So actually this even came into play with the Dogfish Head beers, what they were doing with the Ancient Ale series. Even the the beers that didn't have hops as part of the analysis, Dogfish Head would add hops to that in order to make sure the beverage still qualified as beer. Turns out like if you cross over that line, then depending upon jurisdictions and whatnot, you might be considered wine. And again, we get back to the fact that one year brewery, not a winery, so different licenses and also different tax rates. Now, the other thing that also used to happen was the flavorings used to play a bigger role in the amount of alcohol produced. So they would make a bare minimum sort of light, clear beer and then depend upon the flavoring to actually carry in a bunch of ethanol. So the example that they would use is um, basically you have to make the ethanol not potable. So it has to be not fit for human consumption directly. And so a lot of times you would do that by adding acid to it. So for instance, if you wanted to make a lemon flavoring, you could, by law, take 80 proof of you know liquor, add the lemon flavor to it, and then add a bunch of citric acid to it so that you couldn't drink the stuff straight. At that point in time, the alcohol actually stopped being legally alcohol So you could add that in those rules have changed in a lot of places. So like even here in California, for instance, where I'm recording, there was a law change that almost threatened to get rid of bourbon barrel aged beers because the barrels would contribute more than 1% of alcohol to the beers. Fortunately, brewers kind of went, uh, wait a second, we do this and that's kind of cool. And the state recognized that, okay, yeah, that's, that's fine. And the rules got enacted in such a way that that was still allowed to go forward. So you got your pale beer with minimum amount of hops fermented fast filtered uh, to strip as much as possible of, you know, any residual color, any residual, uh, hop flavor, and then overwhelm what remaining beer character was there with the flavor of your choice. Now, again, this is how you produced your hard lemonades. This is how Zima was produced, for instance. This is how uh, wine coolers were made. Um, and it's, you know, it's pretty straightforward, except for that filtration step, which is really hard for us to be able to pull off. Now, there are reasons why they do this just beyond uh, taxes uh, in, in terms of using malt as your as your basis turns out that if you look at malt is cheaper than sugar, particularly when you're buying in bulk. So pound for pound, you can, you can afford more barley than you can, you know, just cane sugar or beet sugar. And our good buddy brewer's yeast is very well acclimatized to the fermentation situation that we are presented with in wort, with the nutrition that's there, with the composition of the wort. And nobody really wants to kind of mess around with too many different yeast strains, at least, you know, in these macro breweries that they they didn't want to. So basically, why not give our good friends yeast the situation that they like? And you're using all the equipment that you are, well, already designed to use and utilizing the same skills. Now, remember, this is all about trying to produce booze faster and cheaper and more reliably in that given infrastructure. So if you've made the capital investment, that's why you're doing this. That's fine. If you have the ability to do ultra filtration or, you know, you could even probably do this at home, you know, take 10 pounds of malt, just plain two row and, you know, run that through, probably add a big portion of sugar to really thin everything out. Because again, malt substitute, you, of course, as a homebrewer, don't have to add any hops, but if you wanted to play according to the rules, then you could add hops. Now, Ferment it with, you know, yield beer strain and go. And I think you'll probably be fine. But again, you won't get that sort of crystal clear type character that you get in some in these hard seltzers for breweries today, because you can go to most of your craft breweries and they're not going to have ultra filtration systems in, in line. Uh, and what are they doing? Well, because again, those filters are beyond us. So the key goes back to that thing I talked about in the internal revenue code where it says, Or from any substitute, therefore. Dextrose, okay, corn sugar, is considered a malt substitute. So a number of breweries, I think a number of the breweries are not seeking TTB approval. This is all very uh, weird and murky. Because it's legal stuff, and of course I'm not a lawyer. And I would expect that we're probably going to see some rules coming in to sort of clarify that murky picture here before too long. But a lot of breweries up there are straight up fermenting a mix of basically barely boiled water and sugar, uh, and then adding flavorings. Uh, some are using fruits and fruit purees. Some are using uh, flavor extracts, you know, any of the sort of things that you can expect that you'd want to see. And some people are just going straight, no matter what else you're doing with your fermentation. Remember that the point is that you want to make sure that you're getting all the sugar out before your packaging. Cause again, if you're going for a hard seltzer then you really don't want to have any sort of residual sweetness or very minimum sweetness. You may even actually want some acid in there, so some citric acid, for instance, to give it some tartness. Before we go too far, let's actually do a recipe here, and it's pretty straightforward. You need basically about five and a quarter pounds of sugar in five gallons of water, and that's based on the idea of 46 points per pound per gallon for corn sugar. You mix that much sugar into five gallons of water, boil it for... 15 minutes, you know, just some basic sanitation and go. Now here's the problem. This is nutritionally poor for our yeast. This is the equivalent of constantly feeding your teenager a diet of nothing but Cheetos and Coke. Our yeast are not going to be very happy with this. So you do have to make sure that you take this must, right? And add yeast nutrient, you know, so follow whatever your favorite yeast nutrient is Follow the packaging uh, uh, directions. I actually really do like the whole mead practice of staggered nutrient additions. Uh, I do this with my ciders as well as my meads, and I think that would work perfectly fine here. But more importantly than that, instead of messing around with brewer's yeast, I'll use a wine yeast. So my favorite is probably Red Star's Cote de Blanc. It gives a nice little bit of fruitiness, and it's a reliable fermenter. Um, you could use, you know, 71B for instance, go and look at your meat, meat advice, but remember those yeasts are designed to live in simple sugar environments, but they still need nutrition. I don't like the most obvious choice or the, uh, the most fitting choice for this, which would be using distiller's yeast, right? Because distiller's yeast is designed to work in a simple sugar wort. That's all you're making when you're making a wash. And you could use that, but I don't like the flavor characters that you get out of distiller's yeast. Because remember, distiller's yeast are not really designed with flavor in mind; they're designed with fermentation speed in mind. Let the fermentation ride. I would still go say low and slow, so around sixty-eight, you know, sixty-six, maybe up into the seventies. Add fruit if you're going to add a puree. Once the add that once the ferment is going and. I would also do this with frozen and thawed fruit to be able to give it a chance to let the sugars get into solution and also get out of solution after fermentation, crash, make clear. This would be a perfectly good time to use some gelatin or some biofine. And then package. And you want this to be big, bright, and spritzy. So you want to take a sample of your seltzer and consider adding a salt or an acid, again, like citric acid, Based on how it tastes, and then go about enjoying your summer. And remember that, you know, well, there are no laws. If you want to back sweeten, you'll have to make sure to dose your seltzer after it's done fermenting with potassium sorbate, which is also called sorbostat or sorbostat K, a couple different things. Remember that uh, sorbostat works by interrupting yeast reproduction. So if the yeast is actively fermenting, you're not actually going to stop the fermentation use the sorbostat, just mix that in, and basically once the ferment's done and the sorbostats in, nothing will come back to life. And then you can add in sugar, take your pick, agave if you want to be fancy. That's how you make a hard seltzer. I'll admit I'm not a fan of the style. I think it, well, it, I'd rather just have a vodka and soda. Actually, I'd really rather have a gin and tonic. But I have made over the years sort of an electric lemonade, so kind of like a Mike's hard lemonade, but with more natural ingredients. And it's pretty much brain dead and super simple to do, particularly if you have access to a lot of uh, good, relatively cheap citrus. So this is how you make a hard electric lemonade. I will get two liters of fresh squeezed lemon juice. Again, I'll, I'll give you my same tip I give about other things. Go to the farmer's market at the end of the day, when the farmer's getting ready to load the trucks back up and you can usually get a pretty good deal You don't need pretty lemons, but you do need a lot of juice. I will add that two liters of fresh squeezed lemon juice to 4.75 gallons of water. Oh, and by the way, when you squeeze enough lemons to give yourself two liters of fresh squeezed lemon juice, make sure you wear gloves. Otherwise, your hands are going to really hate you. So add that two liters to 4.75 gallons of water and then add enough sugar to reach 1048, 1055, depending upon your desire. 48 would be more sessionable, 55 a little bit harder. I know some people who go insane and want to make this thing like 14%. I don't agree with that. That's a lemon wine. When I'm making something like this, I want something that's a little bit more sessionable. Again, that's the whole point of the ready to drink market. Again, ferment with Cote de Blanc and make sure you add nutrient. This is going to be really hard actually on the wine yeast because it is going to be so incredibly acidic thanks to all the lemon juice. And then because it's lemonade, this is where you absolutely have to back-sweeten. I don't think you can make a electric lemonade without some back-sweetness to it. So again, follow those directions I gave you before about using sorbostat Check your package directions, add that, and then make sure you add your sugar source, again, like a honey or an agave or even just a simple syrup. Make sure you keg, because once that sorbostat's in there, you're not going to be able to get any natural conditioning. If you don't, you'll need to... Well, you'll, you'll need to be able to drink straight fermented lemonade with no sugar, and that's just not fun. So I hope that you can see, yeah, this is a weird little trend, but remember, at least historically speaking, the people who are going after these sort of trended beverages, these flavored malt beverages, these ready-to-drink type things, they don't tend to be very loyal drinkers. You know, they're not a dedicated IPA drinker, for instance. So for all of the static, all the guff, all the worry and people having conniptions, these beverages will go by the wayside. Remember, no matter what you might think about hard seltzer, you know it's kind of good to understand the magic of fermentation. So so go ahead and give it a shot. Who knows? Yeah, maybe somebody close to you will enjoy your attempt to make a hard seltzer or an electric lemonade or something like that. Yeah, after all, fermentation is magic. Thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of the softer side of a hard subject. Let's face it, there's a lot of guff, grief, and general disparagement about the whole hard seltzer thing, but it can easily turn out a thing that for the moment makes people happy. So why won't you? Sky's the limit on flavors, so I expect you to get busy and make all of the flavors. Now, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at expbrewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA, brewswag.com, experimental, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the websites, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is Chat with Champs, helping kids with cancer to connect with each other. Remember, this is Igor, uh, Miguel's daughter's charity, after she survived her round with cancer. Now she's giving back, and don't you want to help her too? All your Patreon donations go to her cause. Until next time, remember, the brew is out there. And we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of none other than Simple Home Brewing by two guys named Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham. Maybe, just maybe, you've heard of them. If you want to streamline your brew day, make great beer, and have a blast in the process, head over to BrewersPublications.com and buy a copy of Simple Home Brewing.